We start, though, with a change that is affecting long-term care. As of today, visitors to long-term care facilities in BC must be fully vaccinated. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Dan Levitt, the CEO of Kin Village, a facility in Tawasson. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here today. Uh, so what is the change as far as what visitors have to show and what they'll be asked for today? So effective today, all visitors coming into long-term care assisted living in BC must be fully vaccinated. So they must have had both doses um, seven days prior to coming in, and they must be able to prove, um, just as we all are doing whenever we're going somewhere these days, uh, they must show their proof of vaccination, so that vaccine card, a QR code, and if they cannot produce that, they won't be able to access the inside of the building or even the outdoor space. And so it would be the same QR code, just they would have to be updated to show instead of partially, it would have to show fully? Exactly. They have to have um, their series of vaccinations completed um, a week in advance of coming in. And of course, it's the standard vaccinations that we all have or a combination. And are you are long-term care facilities then making sure that when people come in, it's not just a, people are looking at the code on their phone, they are actually scanning it? Yeah, so we're double-checking, making sure that it's, you know, obviously legitimate. Um, we know all the family members that are coming in. We have them um, a screener um, during our usual visiting hours, and uh, we're making sure that um, people are in compliance, and we have records. So we, we recognize the family members that are coming in, and, and uh, obviously the ones that have shown in the past that they're vaccinated um, aren't a concern, and there are very few people who aren't vaccinated at this point. A few people, but have there been incidents where people have tried to come in and access the facilities uh, but didn't have the vaccine record to show? We haven't had any sort of um, people stopping, if you will, at the front door and being pushed away. Um, We're aware that there are several family members in um, all care homes and and probably all places that um, people want to get into, that are used to getting into. there are people who won't be vaccinated and uh, it's unfortunate and uh, we're working with those people, the family members, to make sure they can still have um, other kinds of visits. If it's a window visit, if that's possible, or a virtual visit um, using some kind of telecommunication, FaceTime or Zoom or something else. And we're trying to figure out if there's a family member that is vaccinated that can come visit in their place. So we're trying to work with those family members that for whatever reason aren't vaccinated. Uh, on the BC government, the information site, it still says uh, you can only, as far as wearing masks and such, that they must be worn in hallways and common areas, saying you can only remove your mask when visiting residents in their living area if you're fully vaccinated. But I would imagine that just hasn't been updated, that if we're talking about people all being fully vaccinated, that's when people can remove their masks? Yeah, so so we're still asking uh, visitors um, to do their, their hand hygiene um, we're still asking them to wear their mask in hallways and in common areas, but when they're visiting in the residence room, they can remove their mask. So we're not quite back to you know, pre-pandemic um, um, environment, but we're getting closer and closer. So we do still ha- see there's a potential risk of the virus being introduced this way. But so we think this is one more measure that we can do to, to protect the people who live here and the staff who work here. And how are things going as far as staff members? I know there had been some concerns, and it's been a couple weeks now, that staff members have had to be vaccinated. How are things going in that? Did you lose many staff members? So we lost less than 1% of our total staff. Um, Otherwise, everyone else has been vaccinated, and we were delighted to see that people 
were able to um, make that choice towards the end of this, um, and they've been vaccinated. So we haven't really had that much impact on our staffing complement. Um, however, there is a general staffing shortage um, due to a, a bunch of different factors, um, not just long-term care in, in many industries, and it's really impacting us tremendously. So we're still looking for a health human resource strategy provincially around long-term care assisted living and locally you know, at Kin Village and other colleagues of mine were developing um, those strategies to sort of ward off um, the lack of staff we have. But it's a huge challenge. So even losing one staff member for us is a big impact. And how are things going then as far as the multiple work site? Or are you, do you have staff members then that are, are able to work within the health region at different sites? Or how is that working? Well, it's, it, it's a little challenging for us. In our case, we're in Tawasin, and others will be experiencing the same thing, um, where they might be isolated, not have kind of a few partner homes that they can work with to have kind of that, that single-site exemption amongst some peers. Um, so that is a challenge for us. But I think as time goes on, as we see more people being, being vaccinated and as we kind of settle into this current normal, um, I think we're going to see some changes to things like the single-site order and more flexibility around sharing staff between sites, which will really help a lot because people do, um, some people choose to work overtime, they choose to work extra shifts, and um, it'd be helpful to have people who, who have the capacity to work more than one FD who choose to do so um, and are able to do so and sustain that um, for them to be able to share um, that um, talent amongst a few sites. So we're looking forward to that um, coming back in the future. So as of right now, is the single site mandate still in there or are, or are there any exemptions where staff members can work in different places? Yeah, there are exemptions where people can work in different sites if they have basically um, a cluster of, of sites together. Um, we haven't been able to do that ourselves at Kin Village, but um, I suspect in the future that there'll be some relaxation, um, either a, a larger geographic area or perhaps the single site order will be reconsidered. Um, so based on the fact that we have such a huge crunch right now on staffing shortage and given the fact that um, staff, I suspect, hopefully we'll have an announcement today around staff being um, vaccinated in, in long-term care so and families as well. So I think we're going to see um, less risk, hopefully, and uh, we'll, then we'll see a change perhaps to that policy. Uh, as we talk about this and talk about the vaccination rates being so high and with this new requirement now for, now for family members to be fully vaccinated, uh, an information bulletin that went out from Fraser Health just yesterday uh, declared outbreaks at Chilliwack General Hospital as well as two other uh, care facilities, Harrison Point, which is an assistant, assisted living facility, and Valley Haven, which is a long-term care facility. Uh, in those scenarios, there have been positive cases. How concerning is it that given all of these measures, people still wearing uh, protective equipment, uh, people, uh, even though it is just today that people have to be fully vaccinated, how concerning is it that we're still seeing these outbreaks? Well, it's, it's really concerning. I was talking to some staff members earlier today in, in our, our lunchroom, and we're very concerned still about the possibility of an outbreak. And we're doing everything we can. We're continuing to, do, to doing hand washing and wearing face masks. Uh, physically distancing and you know, doing point of care assessments and we still screen everyone who comes in the building we do temperature checks um, we're, we have rapid testing available if needed um, anybody who, who who doesn't feel well we have sick time for them they, they can go get tested so all those measures are in place and um, there is definitely concern about um, it could come back and we know that um, for example staff members um, they were first vaccinated as early as December as were long-term care residents that's why the boosters um, were so important in getting the influenza vaccine in the arms of seniors especially uh, the fact that respiratory season is is upon us so there is lots of concern and we know that um, the virus um, 
isn't um, discriminatory or is discriminatory against uh, seniors. So we know that they're much more impacted by severe illness and as are older workers. So it's really um, something on our minds. Um, we pray this will go away soon and hopefully this is the last variant we're going to see. Um, but we, we are concerned about seeing so many outbreaks and um, the devastation it, it does uh, cause. And uh, we're hopeful that we'll see a decrease as more and more people are immunized. And Dan, something kind of struck me, and I and I get that the reason we're doing this is for the greater good and it's for everybody, but I was thinking too, there must be scenarios, and you would see this, where people who are living in long-term care, uh, whether they feel consulted or not, and, all, and even though the understanding is, yes, it's for everybody's well-being and we're trying to keep people safe, there's got to be at some point, we're so far into this now, where people in some scenarios living in long-term care are just done with it and just want to live their lives and and let whatever happens happen. Yeah, I mean, there's, Jill, there's certainly an element of that that I think we've, we've all experienced. We've all been through this, and we're probably lots of people are taking um, some liberties right now, um, you know, calculated liberties and maybe out in the public. Um, but yes, um, our duty is has always been from day one when the you know the very first long term care home opened. Um, we've always had that duty to protect the people living there and to protect the people who um, who work here and, and the families who visit. So yes, we have to, to make sure that people are um, being safe. But you know, I I think Jill, to your point, um, we're making sure we celebrate anything we can. Uh, we had a wonderful Oktoberfest celebration at the beginning of the month. Um, it was great to see um, so much cheer and. Uh, you know, music. It was ruckus. It was lots of fun, and uh, you know we're looking forward to Halloween, um, kind of on the weekend. And of course, uh, there's a few holidays to celebrate in December. So we're really ramping up our calendar, and uh, you know it's so important to have um, that normal life, that feeling, especially um, when you are um, old age, living in a care home that you're celebrating every day, and everything is meaningful. So um, it's our you know responsibility to make it feel um, as wonderful as possible. And uh, you know we are concerned you know, that we might let our guard down, and that's when things could happen. So we are making sure that we're being safe, but um, celebrating every day that we can. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time so much. Anytime, Jill. Thank you. Well, the Alberta referendum results are in. This one we are talking about is to do with the time change. And it was close to say the least. With Alberta residents, they were asked whether or not they wanted to stay permanently on daylight saving time. It was almost a 50-50 split with 50.1% of Albertans saying no. So basically, that means Alberta will also continue to fall back and spring forward their clocks. Same thing here in BC, although we've certainly had similar conversations. It was the Premier who said it was coming to an end. Then the pandemic hit so we too will be falling back, not this weekend, but the following weekend. Let's bring in Michael Antel, professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary, also vice president of the Canadian Society for Chronobiology. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised at all that the vote in Alberta was so close? Uh, no, no, <laughs> I knew it was going to be close. Um, I'm pleased that it came out on the on the no side for sure. And why is that? Well, for Alberta in particular, uh, daylight savings time uh, permanently year-round would have been bad. So people like um, uh, the Sleep and Circadian Societies and uh, the Canadian Society for Chronobiology have been advocating for the healthier, more natural standard time year-round. Um, and that would be everywhere, including D.C. But for Alberta, we actually 
are quite delayed from the clock we follow anyways. Uh, so we have daylight time hours even in the winter. And so moving to this permanent daylight savings time would have given us double daylight time. So we'd be really offset from the time we follow. Plus, uh, most of the population of Alberta is quite far north, so uh, especially compared to uh, the lower mainland of Vancouver. So we have really short days in the winter. There's not a lot of daylight to follow, and our body clock's going to follow that sun, uh, even if it's really delayed. So because of our northern population and the fact that we're quite west of the time we follow, it would have been really bad in Alberta in the winter on daylight time. Uh, one of the criticisms as well here in BC has been we were also asked uh, if we wanted to stick to one specific time, but only asked about staying permanently on daylight saving time. There wasn't the option to say, I would like to stay on one time all year round and I'd like that time to be standard time. Would that have made a difference, do you think, or would it make a difference in Alberta? Um, yeah, so I think there's two questions. And I think if they had asked, uh, the first question should be, do you want to stop changing the clocks? And I think you'd have almost 100% of people vote in favor of getting rid of the clock change. Uh, the, the division, though, comes with the next question of, okay, where do you want to land? Do you want to be on, on daylight time or do you want to be on standard time? And I think that would probably be about a 50-50 split. And how does it work in then, and you, you raise interesting points about where the population is situated more so in Alberta. One of the arguments for BC made by the Premier has been, well, we couldn't do it alone if the the states, California and Washington and Oregon, didn't also do it. But what about the difference if Alberta had voted to go to one permanent time, them being off, I guess not so much as we had when we look at Saskatchewan, but being off with BC clocks? Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, I was a little mixed feelings about what BC was planning um, because although uh, the scientist in me knows that you guys would actually do better on standard time, if you went to daylight time and I was able to convince Alberta to go with standard time, we'd have the same clocks and that actually would be great. But if we move forward with daylight time in the winter and BC was still waiting for the states, uh, Oregon and Washington, California, to get on board, um, then there would actually be a two-hour time difference between Alberta and BC for a little while. Which would be, which would seem strange, I would think, especially for people living close to the border. Yeah, well, there are some places in BC that already follow the Alberta clock, so uh, it'd be interesting to see what they would have done had we made the change if they would have stuck with more with what BC is doing or if they'd followed Alberta along. So places like Fernie, uh, I know, um, still use the Alberta clock. Right, right. And when we talk about what it does to us, and you talked about there would be such short days and darkness, what does it do, or what are, I guess, are the benefits of, of changing the clocks? Well, the, if you keep changing our clocks, so spring forward, fall back, um, it maximizes the, the sunlight that we have in the summer so we can get to enjoy our nice long summer evenings, but it avoids um, the, the harm that would come from these really short uh, and uh, mismatched winter days. So when you don't have a lot of daylight, it's really important that you synchronize your, your work schedule with your body clock. The body clock doesn't care what the clock on the wall says. It's just going to follow the sun. And so you want your, your social clock, your work, your school schedules to match your body clock as, as best as possible. Right. Because when we're, we think of it too, and I know whenever we say we get longer days, that's not actually true. As, as we know, it's the exact same day, but it's just yep. the time is different. So if we were leaving the time the way it is, could we not adapt given that we're still getting the same amount of light? 
Well, your body clock is going to is going to follow the sun. That's all it can do. It's been doing it for millions of years. Um, mm-hmm. And when the days get longer in the summer, we do adjust. So we, we have more flexibility when there's a surplus of sunlight. Your body clock can can do pretty good with that. But with the short winter days, it gets really constrained. There's very little flexibility, and it really is going to be following that dawn light. That's what it really needs to see. And if that dawn is delayed because you're on on daylight time. Uh, it's going to make those 8 a.m. meetings feel like a 7 a.m. meeting now in the wintertime. So where do you think we go from here? Like you said, those two questions, if you asked people, do you want to stop changing the clocks? People would likely say yes, but we can't seem to decide or agree on where we where we stop those clock changes. Yeah, I'm not sure Alberta did it the right way. Um, certainly, you want to have uh, an idea what the public wants. But really, um, I think the the best approach is to have a commission that can go and liaise with all the different stakeholders. So talk to industry, talk to the tourism, talk to media and the sports teams, uh, talk to physicians and sleep experts and consider all the different uh, options. But certainly when you're talking to the public, you've got to give them all three choices of continuing the clock change, which is sort of the happy medium uh, standard time, which will give us a healthier time year round, but will shorten our or, or give us an earlier dusk, an earlier sunset in the summertime, or the daylight time, which is what we just avoided here in Alberta, where we'd have really late dawns in some places. Uh, is there as much emphasis or any, I suppose, w- when we look at it, BC's argument, there has been so much working with the, the, the states below us and kind of the whole Pacific Northwest area. Is there any, is there concern about if Alberta then was off with the time of the states below Alberta? Um, I'm not sure how much uh, uh, business there is with Montana. It, it would be one thing to consider. Um, certainly, I spend most of my time looking east and west of Alberta to BC and Saskatchewan, where we do have uh, a lot of um, uh, interactions, and certainly to Toronto in the country uh, here, then that's a major business centre. If we were on daylight time, we'd only be an hour off from uh, from Toronto, um, and, and that would be kind of weird being that close to them when we're so far away, geographically speaking. Um, for uh, the states, it's it's they have they don't have the extreme photo period that we have in Canada. Their days don't get as short in the winter, and they don't get quite as long in the summer. So the effects of this choice on them are going to be less than what we would have uh, here in, in Canada. And when we've looked at other jurisdictions that have tried permanent daylight time, so recently uh, Russia tried this in 2012, uh, and they only lasted two years. Once they actually uh, had an experience of what those really short, late winter days were like, uh, they gave up on it. And so now they're on permanent standard time. And that's a, a comparable example to what it would be like in Canada because they're on a similar latitude as us. And you think we should maybe look at other places that have done the experimenting for us, because I know that comes up as a question as well. Is this decision permanent for all the future or are we going to see ourselves back having another vote and calling this perhaps a failed experiment in a couple of years? Yeah, well, that's a great way to put it, because when the UK did it in 1968, they actually put a sunset clause in. It was a three-year experiment, and it had to be explicitly renewed after the three years. Uh, and that would be a good thing to do if BC does forge ahead to, to put a, a, a mechanism in that they can reconsider it at some point, because I don't think the Yukon's done that. With the Yukon, they actually are on permanent daylight time now. And even though most of the people in Yukon live west of British Columbia, they actually follow a clock that's east of British Columbia. They actually follow the the Alberta clock year-round. Interesting uh, things when we're talking about time. We'll leave it there, Michael. Antle, thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this. Thank you.
We are expecting an update this afternoon at 1.30. We're going to carry it live here on the program. Dr. Bonnie Henry, as well as the health minister, we're expecting to get some clarification on booster shots in BC and the rollout of booster shots. And a lot of people will be waiting to see what the plan is for that and the latest numbers when it comes to COVID-19 in this province. So again, we'll carry that live at 1.30 this afternoon. Right now, though, we are checking in with with Terry TG, Regional Chief with the BC Assembly of First Nations. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today. You're welcome. Uh, I know that you and other leaders have raised some concerns saying that booster shots are needed sooner rather than later when it comes to BC's Indigenous population. Can you talk a little bit about that need? Yeah, you know, uh, up here in, in the northern British Columbia, there's a number of chiefs, uh, Chief uh, Abraham from uh, Lake Bambi Nation, Chief Lugi from Wet'suwet'en First Nation, and a number of chiefs that are seeing a number, a high number of, of breakthrough cases. And we got to remind ourselves too that uh, some of the Northern First Nations received their initial doses uh, at the end of December of last year, and uh, subsequently there's a number of months. Where we're we're going into well over ten months in terms of their uh, first and, and second shots, and. Uh, Right now, with the increased rates of infection, especially with the the COVID uh, variant here, the Delta variant, um, uh, we're seeing a number of uh, losses in the community, especially uh, uh, with the the elders and uh, the seniors and uh, those that uh, hold the language. And that's why we're a number of chiefs uh, in British Columbia that have high infection rates are calling for a booster shot now. And when you say you're seeing a number of breakthrough cases, you're talking about people who were fully vaccinated or have have already received both doses. Exactly. Um, you know, full va- fully vaccinated and uh, succumbed to this uh, the infections that they received from the, this, this COVID variant. So it's very concerning. And, uh, you know, a number of chiefs are, are asking the question, why leave it to chance and, and perhaps, you know, should... Uh, uh, give the doses to to those that are most vulnerable, so the elderly and those with compromised immunity. Uh, Because we know as far as booster shots at this point being offered in long-term care, uh, but I would imagine the argument could be made that the groups of people you just mentioned, especially the elderly, uh, whether or not they're living in congregate settings, would be at risk. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're uh, identified as one of the four... uh, uh, first uh, groups to get to get vaccinated were were the ones in care and homes, uh, the elderly, compromised immunity, and and First Nations were identified as the top four. So, uh, I'd imagine right now it's it only makes sense to to give the boosters to the to the highest priority of the the four main groups that were identified at the beginning of uh, you know the uh, bringing out the the vaccines uh, uh, about ten minutes ago. Have you reached out to health officials or had any response at this point to the call to bring boosters now? Uh, yeah, we did share our information and, and share the, the concerns from many chiefs, but I haven't received any word back and uh, looking forward to uh, the press conference at one thirty today. And when you say that communities are experiencing loss uh, from even just some of the numbers that I saw uh, some other uh, Indigenous leaders talking about, I mean, the losses are, are, like you said, people, uh, particularly elderly people in the community are are passing away. Exactly. And, 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 you know, some of those elderly are are the last uh, handful left uh, 
with some of the smaller communities and those that hold the language. And so that's why it's so important that we uh, give them the fighting chance to to protect them and protect their lives. And um, I think it's really, um, you know, one of those things where many First Nations communities are struggling with this disease. And uh, we're really calling out for, for help and assistance. And, you know, we're seeing other regions uh, uh, roll out the, the booster shots, uh, such as Saskatchewan after six months. And uh, we're questioning why not here in, in uh, British Columbia do the same thing. Right, because in Saskatchewan uh, this week, I believe, it's uh, anyone living in the far north and particularly focusing on, on First Nations, on Indigenous communities to give them those shots. Exactly. And uh, it's it's not only, you know, for ourselves as, uh, I suppose, public services announcements, it's, it's, you know, get your first and second shot, first and foremost. Uh, but for those who already uh, received their shots, let's get the boosters out and because we need to protect our communities. Our infrastructure isn't there. We don't have the hospitals. Uh, we don't have, you know, the, the medical uh, help that we need, especially in isolated communities. And we've seen that here in British Columbia as many uh, you know, has really stressed out the uh, the healthcare system. So, up here in the north, uh, many are being transferred either to uh, hospitals that have uh, capacity, such as Terrace, or or on the Vancouver Island and Nanaimo, and and down south outside of uh, Prince George, because quite simply the infection rates are quite high up here. Uh, we know that in some communities as well in the north, the uptake of vaccine hasn't been as much as in other parts of the province. Uh, but it sounds like we're not talking about that here. It's not people who haven't been vaccinated and perhaps or who have been partially vaccinated. Uh, talking about people, again, who have received both shots, who who did what we were asked to do and did the right thing, according to our provincial health officer, but but now are in more of a risky situation. Yeah, well, you're personally right. I, you know, there's some communities that are 100% vaccinated, but there are others that are isolated that um, the uptake hasn't been as great. So we're looking at, you know, uh, 50% vaccine rates uh, up to, you know, even, maybe even more some of the rates I've heard. So that's very concerning because quite simply the way out of this uh, uh, pandemic is to, to get vaccinated and um We've seen, you know, other municipalities have low uh, vaccine rates up in the in the northeast, and and that's similar with some of our First Nations communities. So that's why it's really important that we get out there and and provide the the information that they need. They uh, not just you know something that you find, but uh, you know um, information that is true and, and that speaks to. The vaccine hesitancy and and uh, the truth about some of these vac- about the vaccine, about the COVID nineteen vaccine, that's the information we need out there and need to convince some of our members and 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 I, I would say some of the general public about why it's so important to to vaccinate and and we got to understand too that uh, it's not just in Canada we need to vaccinate everywhere in the world because quite simply there may be another variant out there that maybe worse than the Delta variant. So I think it's not just, you know, one region, one province, one country. It's the world that needs to be vaccinated so we can get out of this pandemic. Exactly. When you talk about communities, though, that the more isolated communities that are sitting around 50 percent, do you get a sense as to is it because maybe they were hesitant in the beginning, maybe didn't want to be first and now being so isolated don't have access or or is it that people are choosing and deciding they don't want that shot? 
Yeah, it's a bit of both. I, I think we, we're getting all sorts of what I'm hearing is that, you know, the, the hesitancy. Some people just don't like needles. Uh, let's just, it's not fun. Uh, you know, there's that long history of, of many First Nations being, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, experimented on within the, uh, the residential school system. Uh, there's also the misinformation that is provided out there by, uh, you know, the the anti-vaxxers, but um, uh, but there's also access to, um, uh, but you know there's ways to bypass that in, in terms of getting our membership uh, vaccinated. Uh, but it's uh, just to be fair, it, uh, you know, many of our health centers have had the vaccine for a number of months, so the opportunity is there. It's just a matter of, of providing the right information, and it's providing that opportunity. And uh, and I think, you know, the more we convince our, our members and, and I suppose the general public, uh, then we can really uh, have, uh, uh, you know, get out of this uh, pandemic uh, with uh, vaccines. Right. And do you think that, that that is possible now that we're so many months into this? Uh, I mean, I, I think it would be safe in saying you're not being experimented on. Here we're at, some people are getting third shots if you're still hesitant to get the first of seeing what's out there. Is that message getting across to people that uh, the safety of this and like you said, that we need to do this to get out of this? Well, sadly, yeah, some of that information is getting out there and, and, you know, convincing some of our membership and some, it's quite simply because, uh, you know, somebody in their family or somebody they knew passed away because of this disease and uh, that kind of convinced them to get the shot and uh, understanding how um, how deadly this virus is. And, uh, and, and you know, this, this, this virus is really hard to... To understand because some people are asymptomatic and don't get any symptoms, whereas others can die, and and it's really tough to, uh, you know, leave it to chance. So why not get the vaccine shot and and make sure your your chances are surviving are of surviving is are quite better when you do get the shot. So letting them know that information and and the you know truthful information and. Um, and I think that would uh, convince a lot of our membership. And there has been a, a slower, you know, but steady uptake, uh, similar to the whole province. We've seen, you know, coming from uh, double vax from 70 all the way up to, to 80. Now, hopefully we get into you know, 90 percentile with the whole province. And, and I, we would like to see that with other First Nations communities as well. What are you hoping for if, uh, as we mentioned, we are expecting the issue of booster shots will be addressed at the news conference at 1.30? What are you hoping for from Dr. Henry, from the health minister? Uh, to offer, you know, some of our very isolated and uh, communities that are experiencing an increase in breakthrough cases, uh, the booster shot. Uh, um, as we've seen, you know, when the, the vaccines first rolled out, it was the four major groups, the the elderly, the, the ones in homes, First Nations, and those with compromised immunity to, to get the booster shots. And uh, that certainly would help uh, a number of First Nations communities up here that uh, in, in, you know, in Northern Health region that are experiencing uh, an increased rate uh, where, you know, the Northern Health region is the highest rate of infection. It, it seems to be leveling off a bit but still nevertheless it's still high for for you know the amount of population so uh, i i think that's what i would like to hear is is really that help uh, of getting the booster shots to to 
take the strain off of our communities and perhaps save some of our uh, most vulnerable, you know, the ones with compromised immunity, um, the elders, the seniors. All right. Well, uh, we will be listening and hopefully get answers to those questions coming up. Chief Terry TG, thank you so much for joining us and for your time today. Uh, thank you, and you're welcome. Well, earlier today, as you've been hearing on the news, a major cabinet overhaul, Justin Trudeau shuffling the cabinet. Some faces and names are out. There are some new faces and new names who are in. And one of the, while not surprising moves, but certainly one of the most talked about. The Honourable Harjit Singh Sajjan. Minister of International Development and Minister Responsible for the Pacific Economic Development Agency of Canada. That was Harjit Sajjan getting his new post, leaving the defence portfolio. Let's talk more about this and some of the other changes that were announced earlier today. Stuart Prest joins me, lecturer in political science at SFU. Stuart, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure. Uh, Not a huge surprise again uh, with the shift of Harjit Sajjan out of defense. What are your thoughts on uh, such a high profile minister and with what's gone down in that portfolio? Well, it became quite clear in in recent weeks that this portfolio was in trouble, that uh, the the Department of National Defense had uh, ongoing issues with senior commanders uh, coming under uh, scrutiny and criticism for allegations of uh, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, uh, improprieties of various kinds, and it just kept coming up again and again, and it seemed like the the, uh, infrastructure was unable to manage it, and that uh, perhaps uh, Mr. Sajjan at the top was unable to give the direction necessary for for the department to to recover. So it's pretty uh, clear that the uh, the prime minister concluded that a a new voice at the top w- was necessary, and now we see Anita Anand taking over from from Mr. Sajjan. And taking over, uh, as you touched on there as well, uh, Harjit Sajjan, who has been much criticized for his handling of sexual misconduct allegations. I mean, Anita Anand is now taking over a portfolio uh, to say that it has challenges that might be quite the understatement. Absolutely. It seems like this is a, a, a portfolio where the challenges are endemic, where to to an, a certain extent, it's not just a question of getting uh, institutional procedures in place and making sure that uh, the right questions are asked, but to ensure that uh, uh, senior military officials and those responsible for, for promotions and, and vetting of, of candidates and so on are, are actually asking, asking the right questions, but not just that, but actually seeming to, to care about the answers, where it, it, it seems like within the department itself or within the uh, uh, the armed forces, there's a, a willingness to, to turn uh, a blind eye to past misconduct, and we just see it happening again and again, and that speaks to perhaps a, a challenge of changing the very culture of Canadian military, and uh, and that is going to be likely a process to take decades, perhaps generations. That's not something you can do overnight, but it's clear that a, a new direction uh, is necessary. to uh, You have to start somewhere, and so Ms. Anand is going to have her hands full trying to change the, the culture of that department and the, the armed forces in particular. Uh, also, a big change when it comes to the health portfolio. Uh, Jean-Yves Duclos moves from head of the Treasury Board to the health portfolio. Uh, what does that tell us in that we are still in the fourth wave of this pandemic and the health minister that's been there this entire time being moved out? 
it certainly suggests that Mr. Duclos has been in a, a trusted position prior to this. So, seen as a, one of the more reliable ministers within within the cabinet, and I think this is not seen as a demotion or anything, but more an indication that health continues to be a real priority for this government. That we are we are not out of the, the woods entirely yet with regard to the pandemic. It's not a question of returning entirely to to business as usual. We have a, an additional vaccine rollout uh, seeming to to be in the the near future for uh, Canadians age 5 to 11 so there's that to manage and and just to continue to to, to manage the the sharing of, of information between provinces providing that sort of supporting role that the federal government uh, has been has been undertaking throughout this this pandemic and ensuring that there is some coordination in Canada's response to what seems like a increasingly an endemic uh, condition that we are going to be managing the, the pandemic portfolio at a, a high level at least for the foreseeable future. So a key member of cabinet taking over that responsibility. Uh, A lot of attention being uh, paid as well to the environment, uh, to climate change. Uh, Seeing Stephen Gibo, a prominent environmentalist, uh, going into that portfolio, taking over the environment portfolio. Uh, Your thoughts on that? I mean, it suggests that uh, this is going to be an emphasis for the for the government in in this new parliament. So, uh, uh, Mr. Gibo is seen as something of a, a, I guess, a climate hawk or an environmental hawk, someone who is favors strong action on the environment and has been suggested by uh, opposition uh, members that is perhaps a no friend of oil and gas industry. So it is planting a bit of a flag, I think, saying that among the priorities uh, of this government, of which there are, are many, uh, the environment is going to continue to be a central focus. And we have to wait and see whether uh, the minister is given the resources and the authority to to advance action, perhaps to see whether there's an increase in, say, the, the rate and increase in the, the nation's carbon tax or if other measures are being undertaken we do we don't really know but we'll get an early indication with uh, uh, the the current international negotiations under underway with regard to climate at the UN uh, the minister will be attending those with the prime minister I understand and so we'll get a sense of the, this government's direction on on that file in the very near future I think uh, do you think there's reason for concern I know some have brought this up given with a bill I think it was bill c10 and Stephen Gibbo's kind of he he wasn't able to explain it in a way that uh, there was a lot of confidence in it that government wasn't trying to control what we were doing online and control what people could put forward, what people could post on in their own personal uh, ways that they would post information. Do you think that there's there's reasonable concern that given that file and how he handled that file, uh, we could see some of that uh, now with the environment file? I mean, it's a real possibility. They are both very complex uh, files with with uh, multiple challenges, multiple uh, competing perspectives. So there is a simultaneously within Canada a desire to see some sort of measures taken against, say, hate speech online to to ensure that communities are are protected against harassment. So there is a sort of uh, real desire to see some kind of action to to ensure that uh, social media uh, titans like Facebook are are being regulated, but at the same time to do so in this sensitive way that we are not clamping down on Canadians' legitimate exercise of their uh, freedom of of expression. And uh, it's not clear that the government got the balance right when, with their first attempt. So uh, I think it's fair to, to be a, a little bit 
uh, what, uh, careful, uh, skeptical might be a strong word, but to watch this minister's performance and to see if he's able to negotiate the multiple competing uh, interests on, on environment, which is, uh, again, uh, at the, the heart of some of the debates within this country. It may be that this government is planting a bit of a flag here, saying we're, we're going to side and on the side of aggressive environmental action, even if it leaves behind a, a portion of the, the country in the, the oil and gas-dependent regions like Alberta and Saskatchewan. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Mark Garneau gone. Uh, Melanie Jolie replacing Mark Garneau. What are your uh, thoughts on uh, Mark Garneau, who's a very recognizable face, being dropped from cabinet? Yeah, it is interesting, and and I don't know of any particular reasons why he would be dropped. So I think this may just be a question of uh, the difficulties of, of cabinet math, it's a, a, a desire to maintain a, a balance in terms of uh, representation of different regions, representation of uh, of uh, gender, a balance of men and women, which the the prime minister has reiterated a, a commitment to. Uh, it, it is not easy to to represent all the different. Uh, facets of Canadian culture, Canadian society, Canadian regions, and uh, it is possible that Mr. Garneau is simply a, a, a victim of that. So we may see in the near future some some alternative path open up for, for Mr. Garneau. I've already seen speculation that he may be in line for uh, an ambassadorial role, so, so that may uh, be in the offing, and we'll have to wait and see there. Uh, any other changes or new faces or old faces that stick out for you? I think it's it's worth flagging that uh, we were seeing some some new faces uh, uh, in the, the uh, Indigenous portfolio. So we see uh, Mark Miller moving over to uh, Crown Indigenous Relations, and so uh, that's going to put him in, in perhaps a little more of a spotlight in trying to resolve some of the lingering challenges that the country has with regard to high-level relationships between Indigenous peoples and the Canadian government. And we also... Uh, uh, see uh, the the former minister there, Carolyn Bennett, being uh, shuffled out into to another portfolio, which may be may be interpreted as a, a bit of a demotion. So she ran into controversy regarding some comments she made online uh, about uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. So it's I think a signal there that the the, the government is still focused on trying to advance uh, uh, Canadian Indigenous relations. We see the former minister of health, Patty Hayju, moving over to Indigenous services. So I suspect this could be interpreted as a, uh, a renewed emphasis on, on those issues. And in light of the controversy surrounding where Mr. Trudeau was on September 30th, I think there is uh, some work to be done there to show that that is a real priority for this government. Uh, the Conservative leader uh, has called the new lineup a collection of, quote, largely inexperienced and ideologically driven individuals who represent a real risk to our economic pres- prosperity and national unity. Uh, what are your thoughts? on that. Obviously, the the Conservative leader is going to come out critical of this, but his labeling them as inexperienced and ideological. It's a pretty big swing. So it suggests uh, that uh, uh, Mr. O'Toole is is looking to perhaps uh, uh, come out swinging in this uh, this new parliament, and I think it, it's fair to say it's a very different look for this government. And there there are a handful of, of new ministers. It's a lot of, uh, of of shuffling of seats as well. A number of of people remaining in cabinet moved to to different portfolios. So uh, I think it is. Uh, 
remains to be seen whether we're going to see more ideological or sort of more uh, sort of principled government from this this country. It's a it's an interesting sort of, uh, of uh, insult to be to be thrown at at a, a governing party to say that uh, the problem with with this this group is that they're going to stand for a, a certain set of principles as opposed to being more uh, pragmatic in in their government. And it's not normally w- what someone says about the Liberal Party. So uh, they're often accused of being too too pragmatic by half of not necessarily having strong principles. So, uh, so it's an interesting line of attack. Ultimately, I think questions of managing the, uh, the economy are going to be front and center here. But on that particular file, of course, uh, Krista Freeland remains Minister of fi- uh, Finance, and so she is by uh, the, the antithesis of a, of a new face. So I think uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about what she's saying and doing in the coming weeks when it comes to managing the economy and ensuring that as the country navigates this, this current wave of the pandemic, the, uh, we, we see inflation remaining under control at the same time, and we see that uh, employment numbers uh, continue to to uh, stay stable. So uh, there's a lot of different things going on, and we do see some some continuity there on key portfolios. But it is it's a lot of new jobs for for individuals, and uh, uh, it will lend a little bit of unpredictability to what happens next. I think.